always excited about our podcasts, and we love all our guests, or we wouldn't invite them on to our podcasts. But today is one that I've been looking forward to for so many months. And the reason is that I came across this podcast. I, I'm not sure whether it was in the, the at the height of COVID or it, it was some you know, COVID-related frustration at having to deal with my contracts class and give them material that they wouldn't be bored out of their minds watching me on a screen. And, and I came across this absolutely brilliant set of English law professors, although I realize now one of them is French, uh, but teaching in England, talking about English contract law cases. And so many of the issues, while foreign to me, were very, very similar to the issues I was trying to engage my own contract students with. And so th this became a fabulous teaching tool. Now, I have had to constrain my use of their podcasts in my class because now I get uh, comments on my teaching evaluations that say, uh, when they're asked about the materials and the professor, they say, well, the materials were very good, particularly those podcasts he assigned us, but the teacher uh, left a lot to be desired. So I'm having to constrain myself from how many of uh, Tim, Severine, and Maggie's podcasts I assign so that the students don't realize they could learn all of contract law from them. But uh, <laughs> Tim, Severine, and Maggie uh, we are so thrilled to have a conversation with you about a case that we think is very important, but we don't really understand because it's all in English law uh, jargon. We've tried to read it multiple times, but also we're just thrilled to tag along, to ride your coattails and have a fabulous podcast because you are our guest. So welcome to the podcast. I will turn it over to Mark to ask sort of the first question. But first, I wanted to say welcome. Well, thank you for that introduction. And I hope, dear listener, you appreciate that we haven't actually paid for that introduction because <laughs> it is worth quite a lot. Thank you so much for having us on. We're really delighted to be here. And, and that is the kindest introduction. I think we're going to have to keep that as a as a recording somewhere. Um, a plaque on the wall, we would say. Yes. Thank you very much for having us. It is a pleasure. We like to have good intros because usually the rest of our the content is uh, goes downhill from there. But let me <laughs> let me try three. <laughs> we we know that that is not true. We we do know that. We're big fans of your podcast too. So we have listened before, and that is definitely not true. Well, thank you. Um, let me try to just tee it up because we we want to talk about the uh, Argentine GDP warrants case, which many of our listeners will be familiar with. But before we get into the nitty gritty of what, to my mind at least, is a pretty confusing and complicated case. I just want to start off by asking you all what you think of it and what your reactions to it were. Um, and I guess from the perspective of people who think about contracts, there's all kinds of interesting questions that are lurking in the case. There's questions about 
how much fidelity and respect one should give to texts versus the presumed intentions of the parties. And there's you know, questions about whether parties really have the ability to write precise contracts dealing with difficult questions. And I guess I wanted to know what you thought of it after reading it, whether whether you thought it was right, what what contract law bells it uh, it started ringing for you, and and Maggie, maybe I can ask you to you to start, although you all yeah. should take it however you like. Yeah, okay, I'll I'll put my two penny worth in, as as an English person might say. Um, I, I think probably the judgment is correct. That's going out on a limb immediately if there's an appeal, as there may well be, given the sums of money involved. Um, but I would say that um, it's really focusing in on the difficulty which parties have in terms of formulating a mathematical um, construct, in this case, in terms of uh, triggering repayment obligation. And what you're really doing is you're taking something that ought to be expressed mathematically and putting it into a verbal setting. And that I think becomes particularly difficult to do accurately. And it sort of strikes bells with me with some other cases that we've had in England um, where um, the client has formulated a formula and presented it to the lawyers and no one has really stopped to think whether that formula could be interpreted in more than one way. And the other thing that struck me is that I think it was Mark Twain, or if not him, he's uh, picked it up from someone uh, much, uh, much further back in time. This idea of prediction of the future is particularly difficult. And we've got here a 30 odd year span uh, of a complicated uh, charts of, of GDPs and this document is supposed to be able to cover that entire period and, and that's very difficult to do accurately uh, and as, as we've seen here there is a recipe if you like for disagreement so there were the sort of two things that, that struck me a formula that is difficult to express accurately verbally, and the other main problem of a contract that is supposed to run for 30, maybe more years. Let me, so th that, was a, that was a great setup in terms of one aspect of this case, which is that it was a new type of contract. Uh, GDP index bonds are not commonly used. Uh, Argentina was one of the first countries to use them. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for these kinds of contracts from economists at the time, particularly 
from the IMF, but uh, at least a couple of Nobel laureates had written articles about how these kinds of contracts were going to save the international debt market. But I, I am wondering about some additional aspects of this that maybe are important, and I, I'm curious as to whether or not uh, this struck you. So Mark and I are used to talking about sovereign debt contracts that are mostly standard form contracts that get repeated time after time and in the process of repetition and sort of what we call copy and paste production of contracts, goofs arise and nobody notices. And so this this puzzles us and that's what characterizes a, a lot of the stuff that we find as opposed to the traditional model of highly intelligent, rational design. Uh, where Can I just you... ask? Yes, of is, course. In your experience for sovereign debt, would it be quite common to have this form of risk uh, structure in a sense because the, the debt repayment was conditional in this contract on three things being actually uh, established for any given repayment year. So in some years, there might be no repayment at all due by the Republic um, to the lenders. So there's a considerable high level of risk being taken by the lenders. Is that uh, typical or standard in the market? Not at all. Uh, I, this, 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 this contract is very important because uh, it was quite unique and uh, it was part of an attempt to get market enthusiasm to use these types of contracts more frequently. So in subsequent years after the Greek crisis uh, and after the first of the Ukrainian restructurings, we have seen that these kinds of GDP index uh, bonds and provisions have been used, but it's it's really just a handful of countries that have used them. And uh, we've had trouble in terms of the contractual specification in almost every case. And this, this gets to the point that maybe I can uh, turn to uh, Tim uh, is, you know, Unlike this typical standard form, as Maggie pointed out, I mean, this is this is more complex, quite unique, and lawyers spend a lot of time designing this, and yet it just seems to have been a complete goof up by the lawyers. Is that a technical Latin phrase? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think I think that's the really interesting part that comes out of this this case. Uh, we had a discussion earlier on. One of the things that fascinated me, really from from the get go, with this was this idea of ambiguity that we're seeing. Uh, one is the literal ambiguity, but also the fact that the the ma the factual matrix, the context within which it can happen, can then create ambiguity where literally there is no ambiguity. And what's then interesting is how the court will then approach that to say, 
well, okay, we're identifying that this is quite a unique contract, but we're going to follow probably a more literal meaning here of the words that are being provided, um, and the factual context will come later. Now, what would interest me is, is, is a question back is, do you think this case was decided correctly? Because from a contract law point of view, and surprisingly, in the history of our podcast, I would say, I think, and I may be misrepresenting, this is, we're probably all in agreement, this, this might have been the right decision. So it would be really interesting to see whether from your point of view, you think it was actually decided correctly. I mean, I can't speak for me too. I actually, me too, I don't know what you think, but I, I, first of all, I find this just beyond confusing. I, I have to confess that the amount of mental energy I feel like this case requires to understand is um, inordinate, and and I I have to I have to push myself to to engage with it the way it needs to be engaged with. But the textual reading I think is pretty compelling. That is to say, I mean I whatever the underlying intent here was, and I think we can, maybe we can talk about Argentina's sort of underlying argument that it produces absurd results to read it the way the plaintiffs read it here. But the text does seem to kind of say what the plaintiffs allege that it says. And so in that sense, uh, that, that was why I kind of teed up the initial question of whether this causes us to think about the balance between you know how much weight do we give to text versus how much do we invest in trying to figure out what the underlying intent was because my initial reaction was that the text is pretty clear yeah i, I, I would mean, say it's a sort of spectrum uh, or, or a balance between those two perspectives what we call textualism and contextualism. And I, I think English court would say the more sophisticated a document, uh, if you like, the more, I often say to students, the more the expensive lawyers all over it, um, the text is likely, but you can't say it as a rule, but likely the text is going to be particularly weighty on that spectrum, as it were. But that's not to say that the context, the background factual matrix, an English lawyer might say, is not relevant. We can't say that. It is relevant. But on a spectrum or a balance, I don't know how else one could see it visually, I would say the more sophisticated the document, we are leaning towards the text. Um, we would look at the context. So, for example, I think uh, the Republic of Argentina made quite a lot of the fact that the chart, that basic uh, starting point for the mathematical calculation, uh, was predicated on the assumption of 3% per annum GDP growth. And that is probably, in my view, the strongest argument which the Republic had as it was put before the High Court. Um, and so the way in which they were arguing the proper interpretation uh, was to try and stay faithful 
with that 3% assumed projected change over this 30 odd period. Um, but the difficulty they have is that they are trying to insert language into this sophisticated document. Uh, and not only that, but the language that they're trying to insert appears not to have any particular strong base in the factual matrix. So this rebasing idea to use the 2012 GDP figures in a sense comes out of nowhere. And I think that's what really makes it difficult for the, the Republic's case. And can I just ask a clarifying question for our U.S. law-oriented listeners? When you talk about the factual matrix, are you you're talking about the the set of non-textual facts that are agreed to be relevant to interpreting the text, right? Yes. Well, there's always an argument as to what is or is not relevant in terms of the background factual matrix, and I think this comes out of the judgment in a sense, because um, uh, his honor, no, the Honorable Mr. Justice Pickin, uh, I think had some trouble with some of the backgrounds that the Republic of Argentina were trying to say was relevant. Um, Lord Hoffman, uh, and I'm a big fan, <laughs> would say, there is no limit conceptually to the background factual matrix. In principle, that is so, but it has to be material that was available to both of the parties at the time of the contract. So, for example, um, the Republic of Argentina's uh, really bad financial state in 2001, with inflation running at 40% and 50% of the population below the poverty line and the jet DDP ratio running at 130%. That would be relevant, but only in a very general sense as to what this document is trying to achieve. And I think the court had difficulty with giving much weight to this background argument that this 3% per annum uh, projected improvement year on year of GDP was relevant when trying to construe the precise wording that had been used. Does that make some sense? Yes, it, may, it, may, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, even though I found the opinion uh, quite hard to read, perhaps because I'm not used to reading English cases, uh, but also the, the, the factual circumstances here were difficult right at the start. And this is, again, despite not... The, that Mark and I are familiar with uh, GDP index bonds and have even talked about them on our podcast. But I, I want to come back uh, to the question of sophistication of the 
parties involved and the context. And this brings me back to uh, one of the points that Maggie raised. So uh, on, in terms of traditional contract interpretation, whether in the US or in England, I think the court probably did the, the, the right thing or, well, I shouldn't say right thing. It, it did the thing that I would expect them to do because the adjustment provision that the court focuses on seems pretty clear. It, it's almost a zero equals zero provision where Argentina doesn't seem to, Argentina, while intending to put in place the fact that the base year has to be changed to make GDP numbers make sense, writes a provision that really doesn't change the base year. And so one could say, well, that's on them. They, they had very fancy law firms who undoubtedly charged them a lot of money to draft this clause. And if they didn't properly monitor those law firms and these were economic calculations, so there were undoubtedly fancy economists uh, helping them, uh, that's a risk that they bear. So, uh, but to me, reading the context of the Argentine crisis and it was quite widely discussed that these GDP index bonds were meant to give investors growth above 3%. It, it does, the, the outcome for the Argentine people seems to be that yet again, a bunch of rich hedge funds are able to extract billions of dollars from the Argentine people who are in deep crisis yet again. And there, there seem, there, there's just something a little bit off, uh, actually a lot bit off about the outcome here, which I suspect is going to be the outcome in the New York case, which is that the people of Argentina will pay more taxes uh, because their government screwed up uh, and private funds are are going to big, build bigger houses on ski slopes in fancy areas. And it, it at the end of the day, yes, right outcome from a traditional contract perspective in both the US and England, but feels so wrong to me in my gut. Um, so Severine, can I turn it to you in the hope that from uh, a French civil law perspective, you, you will have a more kind and gentle perspective uh, on the poor people of Argentina? Well, as we would say, so it's something we discussed earlier about the difficulty that the courts have to do when they interpret a contract. And what you said at the beginning seems to show that the US and the UK court both uh, struggle with, um, 
what should be given priority, you know, fidelity to the text, as you said, or the underlying party's intention. And it is absolutely clear that when the courts interpret a contract, they use the spectrum that uh, Maggie talked about, but ultimately interpretation is a unitary, is an iterative process, as uh, Mr. Justice Picken uh, referred to several times. So here, even though we may have a lot of sympathy with the Argentinian people that, of course, this is going to be, this is a painful thing. The outcome is painful for uh, Argentina. The courts have to give effect to the party's intention and they will look at what the contracts say and put that into the factual metrics and the reach a decision that makes commercially common sense, but the court cannot rewrite the contract that feels foul if that's what the contract says. And we talked about it this morning uh, that ultimately something that may not be, um, I'm trying to find the right word here, what may not be a very good outcome, but if that's what the contract aims at, the courts are not going to interfere because otherwise they would be effectively rewriting the contract. So no, <laughs> even though this is tough, the, the contract was expensive and so the courts cannot intervene here. There is a fine line between something that is irrational um, and that is the only criteria upon which the court would intervene to say, surely that cannot be what the parties intended. Okay, so so let, let me let me get to that that last point. So let's let me add a few more uh, facts that I might be making up, but I, I think they're sort of they're at least in the ballpark of reality. And now, Severine, since since you refused to go where I wanted you to go yeah. to the <laughs> land of kind-hearted people, and I know Maggie's very tough on this English law stuff. Maybe maybe I can turn this one to Tim, but Tim to so turning it to you and hoping you put on your kind hearted uh, um, face here. He can't, he's, he's sitting right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> we know that investors paid very little for these GDP warrants uh, during the negotiations. And we also know that the bondholders who who took significant haircuts in the restructurings in 2005 and 2010 i think they got paid around 30 cents on the dollar so they 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 took a bath they 
almost all immediately sold off these warrants. So the people who are suing now bought these in the secondary market, and they're go they are going to make billions. Now, I, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily have anything against them getting richer and richer. They they already got very rich on Argentina once. Now they're going to do it again. Uh, but on your podcast. Uh, you have uh, often talked about equity and law, and I, I confess I often uh, find those distinctions a, a, a little bit uh, dodgy. Uh, and you you talk about uh, bad faith, and English judges don't like bad faith, and there there does seem to be something about these purchasing on the secondary market at deep discounts and then aggressively in uh, pushing certain interpretations that while follow the strict text everybody kind of knows that they, i mean that adjustment provision just doesn't work there isn't there i mean isn't there any room in and then there's the stuff about uh, the I think it's the Chartbrook principles uh, yes. about Scrivener's error. I mean, these people goofed, and it, the cost is being borne by poor people in Argentina who Severine doesn't does not want to help. Tim, <laughs> it's not that I don't want to help them. It's just the law. Sadly, I am a good faith relational lawyer. I would love to help them, but the law is not in my. The law is not helping me. But oh no, that th this the law doesn't help me. Come on, our, this is what <laughs> our, <laughs> we're all law teachers. The law is supposed to help you. It's supposed so to do can justice. Can I just ask, how do you say that that uplifting formula should have been written in order to to convey accurately what you think? was the intention uh, of a structured deal like this. And let me add to Maggie's skeptical question of me too. Isn't there a maximum payout specified in the instrument? Yes. And yes. if there's a maximum payout, that seems to me to indicate further reason not to have a ton of sympathy for Argentina here. They, they understood the formula might work in unexpected ways, and they well, contracted to I suppose the other point is, where else were they able to get funding at that time? And I think that that that's yes. This was this was a a strange instrument in a way, in the sense that it was a sweetener, so it was offered in addition to more vanilla bonds in the restructuring. But I think the point the point remains valid. So me too, aren't. Maybe you're just a you're a bleeding heart for no good reason here. <laughs> you you guys are so tough in the Argentine press. I think I'm gonna come out well in the other four. <laughs> Cold-hearted Western imperialist law professors are not going to come out so well, except Tim, of course. Now, Absolutely. Maggie, <laughs> Ma Maggie, to respond to your question before I turn it over to Tim on, um, and I, I, I would like to hear about the 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 chart book principles since I, I think the judge judge did understand quite well what was going on and the tensions here and 
was limited by the fact that the dam adjustment provi provision was so tight in not allowing very much room and didn't seem clearly on its face to be a mistake. You could see people negotiating for this kind of, of contract. Well, but... you've hit on the chart book principle uh, head on now with what you've said, that when you look at the wording of it, it is not obvious that there is a draftsman's blunder even taking in the factual matrix and all the background difficulties that there were for Argentina at the time, even so, it is not clear, is it, Tim, that there was a mistake made in the wording, plus in addition, what the correct wording should read. And it's those two things that you need for amendment, if you like, by interpretation using the Chartbrook idea. Tim? Yes, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm going to jump back a little bit because one of the things you were saying is, you know, they screwed up in the wording. We're, we're looking, of course, for shared understanding. We're looking for what the parties would have meant. And I think the fact that we're seeing that this is being traded on the secondary market, we're looking for someone looking from the outside to be able to read these documents to have the clarity and the 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 point that i think came through in our discussion earlier on is as well that the republic at the time was really trying to build confidence in what they were doing uh, and so i can i can see in that that maybe in the drafting they wouldn't have been quite so um determined to get across uh, their exact message. In fact, they were possibly trying to pull people in. So I'm not sure how much of an actual total nutter screw up this is, or whether we're actually seeing a later on a regretting of a bit of a bad bargain um, as a first point. And I think on, on the second one is, is the mistake point in the, um, the, the Maggie just addressed. One is that we're we're needing to see clearly what this mistake is. There needs to be a mistake on the face of the document. And I think we're struggling with that already in that the alternative meaning makes sense. And, and the standard by which the court is going in terms of commercial interpretation is always going to be, if it makes sense, even if the result would be you know, unreasonable or, or, or absurd, that doesn't mean that it was necessarily wrong. We still need to know what the alternative is. And that's the second point, is that we need to know what it would have been. And I, I'm not convinced that we really know what that other point would have been, or that other, that other clause would have been that would have been there in place. So even if we are, accept that this was just a mistake, I don't think we know how it would have been properly corrected, or at least that's how I'm reading the judgment. Now, a point that we raised early on may be that we, we could go further, but I think we've surprisingly all agreed on this, uh, that we might go down the common mistake uh, route and try and go for rectification of the documents. In other words, being able to prove that both parties had a full-on shared understanding of what it was meant to be and then wrote down the wrong thing. I don't think there's much evidence of that either from what I can see in the judgment. So I'd be struggling here to really agree that this was a complete pudge up in the, in the writing. 
um, I mean, again, I don't know the market very well, so you might be able to to correct me on this one, that really this is something that is completely off the charts and must be wrong. I think the interesting thing, and maybe the, the thing that makes the, the case hardest for me, is that as we've all been talking about, this is not some afterthought provision. It's not something that was you know, just copy-pasted from a prior transaction. They envisioned exactly this scenario. What if we rebase the GDP calculations? And they wrote this provision with a bunch of fancy lawyers with that exact scenario in mind. And it seems to have Nobody can be happy, I think, with the way the provision operated in the in the sense that uh, there was at least enough room to spend years fighting over what the uh, what the right payout amount would be. I'm wondering if this suggests so. So Maggie's initial take, I think, was it's a formula. Write a formula. Don't use. Uh, don't try to use a narrative to to explain the formula. But yeah. I wonder if the bigger problem is just that. It's tremendously difficult to specify exactly what you uh, envision in situations like this. Do you think it would make sense to consider a different type of contracting, one where you articulate a general intent? The intent is to ensure creditors a fair Hmm. share of GDP gains to the extent they exceed IMF projections, you know, capped at X dollars, and then to have some arbitration or other mechanism in place to figure out what that is. Is that a a more sensible way to deal with problems like this? Or should we should we rely on ex ante drafting? Well, you can speak to a certain extent. I don't know. I was going to say you you could see to a certain extent that the alternative way of drafting uh, might actually come out of how the case is put through the court, if that makes sense. Um, Argentina's main case, as I understand it, is that uh, the repayments wouldn't kick in unless and until the GDP was growing at a steady rate of 3%. So that sort of, to my mind, if that's right, as a basic uh, tenor of their position, the, the basic question, rather a simplistic, possibly a naive question is, then why didn't the wording of your contract make that clear? So you're saying, do you actually read this as Argentina being opportunistic? exploiting, trying to exploit the contract language to do something that it knew it wasn't supposed to do? Mm, I I don't think we have the evidence to say that. And we must remember that Argentina had paid, I I think I read 10 billion US dollars over the lifespan of this long running arrangement. Um, But when the GDP began to dip, if I can put it that way, where the growth rates, I made a note, 2009-2012, the growth rate dipped 0.85%, 1.9%. It's at that point when they stop making the payment. 
So I wouldn't say it was opportunist. It is consistent with their understanding that they wouldn't be repaying unless their economy was growing and growing at more than a marginal rate as we have in the UK at the moment. So, so 3% appears to be the figure that they had in their mind. But my problem is that if that was the clear, certain objective from your perspective, Argentina, why in the negotiation did you not ensure that simple position was captured in the written document? But so the question you asked uh, is really interesting. Uh, the only possible way I can think of is to insert a clause whereby effectively you are asking the hedge fund to cooperate with um, Argentina and help them should there be a, a, a problem. So good faith, you know, um, relational um would you know would would that be a possible tool i don't well, think in, that would work severine no, in I know, english sure. I know. it's too vague. oh no no let let no, severine but... go on i like this i like <laughs> this she's going the right way so it, it, it everyone is entitled to be wrong so it, it, <laughs> it would be amazing but is that really going to be accepted by the hedge fund because so it is a long-term contract. I mean, I we, we did talk and I did raise this morning uh, between us the fact that Judge uh, Picken himself does make the point that there is uh, the balance of economic risks and reward between the Republic and the holders of the securities. But would a hedge fund accept an obligation to cooperate would a court accept that this could be regarded as a relational contract whereby indeed it is true that it is an unequal relationship but i mean judging from recent cases in england it would be <laughs> maggie is shaking, shaking her so head violently. so violently it's be... a surprise it's on her shoulders so I, I think, sadly, you know, it would probably be very difficult to accept uh, that there is an obligation of good faith, precisely because I can think, I, I, I can see the hedge fund saying, look, we're taking all the uh, all the risks here because we our risk is that it's not going to be repaid. So it would it would be amazing if that could be taken into consideration and if there could be in terms of vulnerability because ultimately Argentina is a vulnerable, is a weaker party. Uh, Me too, you did uh, put the point uh, here that the hedge funds uh, are not going to do that out of the goodness of their hearts. So I would love good faith and relational contract to step in, but I, I know looking at how the law has developed in this country, I don't see how it would be accepted. I think there's a point possibly to be made that the more simple the document is, the more the court might be willing yes. to then 
accept that when fringe cases happen, they would follow more of a common sense business approach. And I think I think we see the judge saying that to a certain extent is is the commercial common sense will be taken into account. So the more simple you make the document, for example, we're going to give you something at three, once we reach 3%, the more simple that is, the more the court might be willing to then read into that simple business commercial common sense. Will that work on these kind of markets? And I think that's the difficulty. Yeah. Here we have lawyers deeply embedded in a market which is extremely lucrative. I can't even imagine what the hourly rate was for the people who drafted these documents. Uh, and I doubt they would let that happen. So whilst we might see that in other business branches, I just don't think this is some, and hopefully you can correct me on this and you can tell me how how everything is is wonderful and sunny in the uh, in these kind of markets and they'd be open to providing very simple and basic contracts, but I just don't see that happening. You see, English law is very much wedded to the idea of certainty and predictability, and it is arguably one of its strengths in an international market uh, simply because of that fact. And, And quite often business people will say, we don't actually care what the law is, what we care about is that we can predict what will happen. And that is seen to a certain extent in our very restricted, and and Mitu might not be happy with this, but our, our very narrow way in which we can allow anything that smacks of rewriting a bargain after the event from a sort of palm tree justice or moralistic perspective that would erode considerably the strength of the predictability and the certainty point. So to come back to Mitu, your your plea really that the people of Argentina have been sold down the river by their politicians I suppose a cynic would say, was it ever thus? <laughs> and is true wherever you are in the world to a greater or a lesser extent. So it sounds harsh, but English law really has difficulty with anything that looks like rewriting a bargain because retrospectively it might look fair, whatever that word means, Uh, uh, reasonable, whatever that word means. And so you can see what I'm saying. There is a major problem when an argument is trying to do considerable violence to the wording that is captured in a sophisticated document. Thank you guys so much. This has been so much fun and you have been so very kind to indulge us in talking about a case that is squarely in our area, but has so much uh, depth in terms of all of the things that go wrong and go right in these kinds of high 
dollar value contracts where you have this moralistic story that can always be told and i have seen enough litigations where incredibly high priced lawyers who are charging thousands of dollars an hour to do the litigation are pleading with the court in their you know $7000 suits uh, please uh, give some leeway to the people of argentina when you know they themselves are gouging the people of argentina mm. for every every second uh, that they're up there talking to the courts uh, but um, we have taken up too much of your time. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you again, and I hope that you will come back on our podcast frequently. Well, thank you we would for love to. inviting us yes. and having us and being patient to listen to us. And to provide us with the valuable context of the market that we, we didn't know. Uh, I th no, think I can a, say with confidence, we've learned a lot. So thank you yeah. very much. And we, we'd love to be back. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.